Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. It is Wednesday, July 26, 2017. What are you into this week? This week, I'm into a couple things. So perhaps, you know, past my better judgment, I have started watching Iron Fist because I realized Defender starts in a couple weeks and I need to get the whole story, man. I just gotta. And so far, I'm an episode and a half in. It's not so bad. Well, uh, I think that that's probably just a temporary thing. Um, I have heard that the hate train was a little bit, you know, self-fulfilling on this one a little bit. It became, you know, popular to hate it. And therefore, it definitely does not hold a candle to the other Netflix shows. Uh, but so far, I don't hate it. Also, I am, I finished Xenocide by Orson Scott Card. I've been, so that was a slog. Oh, that was a slog. Uh, interesting. You still, haven't, you still haven't gotten on that whole get a hundred pages in. If it sucks, just walk away. No, uh, no, no. Policy yet. Have you? No, no, no. That's not me. That's not me. Uh, and I started the last main book in the Ender Quintet, as they call it. Uh, I guess there's like a short story, or whatever we afterwards, but it's called Children of the Mind. It is moving much quick, much more quickly and is much shorter. So it is holding my attention a little bit. A little bit more than Xenocide. Xenocide had some interesting things, but it was just, it's just long. Long, for a book with no action, just long. 600 pages long. It's like, ugh. And I can burn through a 1300 page Sanderson book, but it's just completely different. <laughs> so, and then the last thing I'm doing with, um, with Shay is she started rewatching Community. So I decided that now is also a good time to rewatch Community. And God damn, is that show funny? Yeah. I, I mean, Dan Harmon is, he's probably the best comedy TV writer that we have right now. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I think it's also because I've gotten so into Rick and Morty that, like, I've, like, I think I've honed in on, like, Dan Harmon's writing style and comedy style so that, like, community is even funnier to me now, like, the, than the first time I watched it because, like, I'm so used in, like, expecting the, I don't know how to describe that, but, like, I just feel like I'm just getting it more and it's just, it's just very, very funny, so... Uh, I know that I haven't even watched like the sixth season and I don't even think I watched most of the fourth. So we'll see how the, you know, decline in quality begins around that, the fourth season. But so far, I mean, just that we just watched that, uh, the Dungeons and Dragons episode, the first one last night. Oh my gosh. That episode's just hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so Dan Harmon has a podcast called Harmontown, which can be a little personal. Um, I, I kind of stopped listening around the time that he and his wife split up because that was kind of all he was talking about and it became difficult to, to listen to. Um, but on his podcast, they they have an ongoing D&D campaign, um, which I now think now they've animated for the CISO uh, streaming network uh, called Harmon Quest. And, and that was always just a, a ton of fun to listen to. That guy's, his love for fantasy and sci-fi and... Um, that stuff is deep and abiding. And I mean, I think that stuff goes, you know, comes out very clearly in Rick and Morty, um, more so than community. But on that topic, it just announced, I think this was at Comic-Con. He announced that he is adapting the Kurt Vonnegut novel, uh, The Sirens of Titan for television. I know very little about this other than it is a sci-fi novel from like 1958, 59. Um, that, that's his next project. So That'll be interesting because I think that's going to force him to be, I think he's probably going to have to make a show that is, has a comedic tone, not just a straight comedy. Yeah. Um, I, I've never read any Kurt Vonnegut because I'm not a hipster. No, I'm just kidding. But, Come on now. Uh, <laughs> well, I just, I, I don't know. I just never was just kind of like, 
every single person who recommended those books to me, it was always like, mm-hmm, okay. I know the kind of stuff you're into. It's not the kind of stuff I'm into, but you know, it's <laughs> fine. Uh, I shouldn't hate, I guess. But yeah, so uh, Community's a good show. That's my roundup. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's. that's a fine transition into talking about most of the news that's come out this week, which came out of San Diego Comic Con, which neither of us went to, but we read the writings of people who were there. Yeah, I mean, someday we'll be famous and we'll get some sponsor to pay for us to go and we'll have our own coverage. It'll be awesome. But, you know, that's that's at least a year away. So let's I guess we'll just run down some of the some of the news that came out. Uh, any any particular place you would like to begin? Because there's there's a lot of it. Let's start since it's since it's Comic Con. Let's start with comic book related things, I think. And then we'll go to the other media. All right. Um, so this was actually this kind of ran under the radar a little bit because it wasn't a giant you know, trailer for a blockbuster action movie, but Marvel announced that Ed Pisker, I think is his last name, is working on a uh, project called X-Men Grand Designs. It's comic, you know, paper comic book project. Um, where basically, I think it was like something like three or four years ago, he sent out a tweet that said something like, you know, I could, I could sum up the first 300 epi- issues of Uncanny X-Men in one cohesive 300 page story and apparently marvel took him up on his boast and he's doing it um and what i think is really interesting is that previously he did uh, a project called hip-hop family tree which was this incredibly detailed uh comic book story of essentially illustrated history of the early days of hip-hop and he has a very distinct style that is very very retro like his work looks like comics from the 60s and 70s not just the art style but the colors he uses it's a lot of that kind of halftone style printing with the colors where they're made up of tiny little dots and doesn't always line up with the outlines um but also he he applies a treatment so that even the pages look kind of yellowed and worn so hmm. it just has this very very uh, aged feel but apparently what he's doing is he's taking you know, those first 250, 300 uh, issues of X-Men. So all the way from issue one in like the 60s up through the 90s, um, which is a very, very convoluted canon with a ton of retconning and a timeline that makes no sense. But apparently he has condensed it all down to one 300-page story, um, which they're going to be releasing. And looking, they've released the covers for them, and they just look phenomenal. It just looks like an alternate history of X-Men comics that you found in your big brother's closet. I'm very excited about this. That sounds really cool. And I hope that it is successful because I would like to see this for all, like every, you know, every character and team, because it just, it would just be fun to have like, cause you know, sit down and be like, I really want to learn about X-Men. It's like, where should I start? It's like, I'll start issue one. It's just like, whoo, you're in a rough, for a rough road, buddy. Like, <laughs> uh, so that's really cool. Um, that sounds like something I will. Probably, it'll probably be like $800 or something ridiculous. It's a, it's a 300 page comic book, but yeah, I think they're releasing it as, I think they're releasing it as like four or five smaller volumes, but that makes looks sense. really, looks really good. That's awesome. So I guess that's our singular paper comic news, but I mean, <laughs> we I snuck did... one in from comic con, <laughs> but onto movie comic news. That is the, is the dominant media form now. Uh, so they showed the first episode of Defenders to people and also to media critics and everyone's saying it's really, really awesome. Yeah, I, I've started to read a review. Um, someone who had 
seen the first four episodes. I guess they've started to distribute Netflix screeners to critics. So I should probably ask Karen if she can mm-hmm. get a hold of them because because we got to watch the first four or five episodes of Luke Cage early because she was, you know, reviewing it and recapping it and uh, Stranger Things as well. So I don't see why this shouldn't be on the list. So <laughs> I'm going to check in on that. But yeah, people say it's really, really good. Um, and I think, you know, you've got some great characters and they've already proven that they can work well together, especially um, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. I can't wait to see them all in a group doing some superhero team stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, from the from the early trailers and from people saying a comics based there or from the reviews are saying that, like, even uh, Danny Rand, who's been pretty much his portrayal has been pretty negatively received, they say is way better in this than he was in his own show and hmm. maybe even might redeem the character, which leads into the news that they've renewed that show for another season, despite essentially, you know, the equivalent of Netflix bombing, although it's still got a ton of watches, but it's Marvel has Marvel logo yeah. on it. Uh, but they are replacing the showrunner and they're also adding Misty Knight to it from Luke Cage. So I, I guess they're hoping that defenders can kind of salvage him and that can go and do better stories. And I hope we actually get to see him fight a dragon. <laughs> As opposed to just having the coolest stuff happen off screen, Rothfuss style. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the style nowadays, man. You gotta you gotta tell, not show. <laughs> so speaking of showing and not telling, uh, so when when they announced, let, let's take a step back here. When they announced that they were making Thor Ragnarok, yeah, and they started you know releasing bits and things like a oh, Hulk's gonna be in it, and so is you know Hela obviously, and then just like all this different stuff. I'm like, so I guess they're not really gonna adapt like. The Ragnarok storyline. They kind of have a, a very, you know, loose adaptation of that storyline. And then the most recent trailer came out, and we get not only giant CGI wolf Fenris, we also get the Hulk launching himself at what is clearly Surtur, and I am 100% on board. Yeah, I, so you're much more familiar with the, the comic book storylines than I am, but what I liked the most about the Thor trailer was that it was like somebody took an airbrushed van from the late 70s, early 80s and was like, let's turn that into a movie. There's like Valkyries and like weird and like and Norse gods carrying M16s for some reason. And it just it's just leaning so hard into the like just goofy epicness of the whole thing. I am so on board for this thing. And like I was reading how and I was really liking the comedy they're showing in the trailer, like Hemsworth's got a great delivery. He's always had a good delivery for comedy, I think. And to see in his interactions with Mark Ruffalo were great. And like, you know, that scene where they're talking and, you know, he's saying like, oh, yeah, I beat you. No, it happened. That's that's the <laughs> truth. You know, like <laughs> and Ruffalo's like, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Uh, and just that like sort of deadpan delivery he's really good at. But the director said that he, this is what he said. 80 percent of the movie's dialogue was improv which is a lot. <laughs> I doubt it's that high, but, uh, you know, I think you can see it from the trailers. It like, looked like they were having some fun with this movie, which is what I yeah. think a Thor movie should be. So that looks awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm of all of the trailers I watched, I may be the most psyched about that. It might be a toss up between that and uh, Stranger Things season two, but I think we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail a little later on. Yes. Uh, but let's continue on with Marvel stuff while we're on topic. Mm-hmm. So they also announced they didn't have a trailer or any footage or anything like that, which is a little unfortunate. But they did announce that Captain Marvel 
and we were we were talking about this last week or a couple weeks ago, like how it was gonna how Captain Marvel was gonna fit into the timeline. So it's coming out kind of between the Infinity War movies, and are they gonna have a side story? What, what are they doing? It's gonna be Greg's favorite, a prequel, but not really a prequel, more like a period piece. Sure. <laughs> Which I think, you know, you're seeing more and more of that as the, the oh, we're introducing a new hero to our universe, so it's gonna be a period piece. I think they did that with Wonder Woman. Um I mean, I guess Captain America was kind of the start of this idea mm-hmm. where, you know, it, the whole thing was set in the 40s and kind of had a little bit of an Indiana Jones type punch of Nazis kind of vibe. Um, I, there's a lot of questions here. One, I'm not sure that I mean, because clearly 80s nostalgia is very, very strong. It's dripping off the Thor trailer. It's oh dripping <laughs> off the Stranger Things trailer. Um, I'm not sure that there is a like a cool nostalgic version of the nineties out there yet that I really want to dive into. Again, I don't recall the nineties all that fondly, but that's cause I was a teenager during them and you know, <laughs> never a great time. Um, but this actually raises some interesting questions because Captain Marvel is, has tell me I'm wrong here, but like Superman level powers. She's pretty damn strong. Yeah. Um, you know, she's, you know, borderline godlike in her in her powers. So she's going to be up there with Thor or, you know, maybe Doctor Strange in terms of what she can do. But the fact that she was absent from all the other events of the Marvel movie continuity on Earth. So, okay, so maybe you could assume that well, she's Captain Marvel, so she's got some cosmic responsibilities. So she's out there being Captain Marvel out in the galaxy, but then to have her not appear in the Guardians movies or even referenced in the Guardians movies, it's going to be interesting how they kind of fill in that absence. Yeah, I'm very curious too because they also announced that, you know, the villains are going to be the scrolls, which is awesome. I missed the I, apparently it was not brand new news that Basically, the scrolls are being shared by Fox and Marvel the same way that like Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver were, which mm-hmm. I didn't hear. Um, so I was like, oh, they must have made it some sort of deal. But that, you know, the scrolls are going to be villains. Nick Fury is going to be in it pre I loss, which is hmm. interesting. Um, and the scroll Cree war is going to be a major topic of interest for the movie, you know, have big ramifications. Well, and the ramification that I'm the most excited about here. And it, if they end up executing it, it's going to end up being retconning. But so for those who, you know, aren't all up on your Cree scroll stuff, the scrolls are shapeshifters. So and if the scrolls existed in the Marvel movie universe in the 90s, there is a strong possibility that one of the characters we've been watching all this time has been a secret scroll this whole time. And that would be so fucking cool. If midway through Infinity War, Ant-Man just is like, no, surprise, I've been a secret alien this whole time. That would be pretty sweet. And I mean, as tired as I am of the Cylon Hunt storyline, this could be really interesting for these like highly established characters um, to start doubting each other all of a sudden. That could be a really neat twist in the storyline that I would love to see. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, I think from what they're saying, she's not she's not going to be in Infinity War, but she will be in the fourth Avengers movie, which is still untitled, the sequel to Infinity War, uh, which makes sense because she'll be introduced in this prequel. I assume, like you said, she'll have some sort of cosmic response, which is why she's not around. But then 
you know, heads back to Earth when Thanos is there wrecking shit, as he is, according to the footage that's been released and some people of nefarious means uploaded the internet. Um, yeah, so this, this, the footage, the Infinity War trailer slash footage that they showed at D23 two weeks ago, they also showed at Comic-Con, and of course somebody bootlegged it and, you know, it goes up, it gets taken down, it goes up, it gets taken down, but, you know, it's the internet and it's 2017, so if you want it, you can go watch it. Um, the only fo- I think you and I saw the same footage, and I think it's the only footage that's available. There's somebody's head in the way <laughs> through most of it, like it's true bootleg, but it is as described and looks pretty fucking cool. Yeah, it's pretty bonkers. I mean, it's like I said, I, I, I'm usually one. Some people are, there's a very big anti-trailer movement now, anti-footage movement. I don't really care because I'm going to, you know, it's fine. It builds my hype. So it's, uh, it's a commercial. Yeah. I'm going out of my way to watch your commercial early, Marvel. You shouldn't be hunting me down for that. Yeah. Um, but usually I just watch trailers. Like when a trailer for a movie comes out that I, I'm excited for, I'll probably watch it like six times in a row, like when it first drops. And then I'll watch it again like every week until the movie comes out because that's the <laughs> kind of guy I am. But I watched this Oof. once and I was like, this is so hard to see and so poor quality yeah. that I'm actually just not going to watch it again because it's going to sour my, you know, my initial thoughts. So I think we probably won't see anything more about this until maybe Thor because they're trying to drive, sure. drive, you know, attention to that and the black Panther before this comes out. So, uh, but regardless, it's, it's pretty awesome. Although yeah. I gotta say Thanos sans helmet looks weird. Sans helmet and armor. I'm not digging it. I'm not digging it, but it's fine. I, I like that Thanos cause I've seen that Thanos in the, in the comics and he just, I don't know. It seems more like, I don't know. It's not that the armor isn't cool and, and, but it's, a, it's that idea of like, it's this ornate ceremonial armor and like that he's going to be going around and hunting down infinity gems in this. It's like, no, he's going to be wearing something comfortable, like something that looks almost like some kind of like archaeologist or explorer outfit. And I also think there's something, so I actually think that his like, you know, casual friday outfit that he's wearing in the trailer and then in that you know big uh statue of him that you can see from from d23 um i think there's some that somehow makes him so much more intimidating in those brief action sequences where he's fighting the avengers because it's like he gives so few shits about the avengers that like he can't even be bothered to put on his cool armor to come fight them like he's just like it's you know he's just like palling around in his sweatpants and flip-flops and he's like uh you people are here like he's like answering the door for pizza. Like that's how much he cares about this. You know, it's not like he's going for a job interview and putting on his best. It's like, no, he's like these idiots. No, I can pull suns out of the sky and throw them at you. I don't, I don't need yeah. to get dressed up for this. Yeah. I, I really like it. <laughs> I do think that like, it's funny. Just like he gets the infinity gauntlet. And he's like, well, fuck, I don't need this armor. Like, just like I'll carry <laughs> this thing around. Like I could come up and show up naked and it wouldn't matter. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I'm very excited for that, but, um, Hopefully they will release that footage or that trailer at the latest for Thor. Yeah, I think I think you'll see it attached to Thor because I mean Thor plays. I mean Thor shows up in the beginning of the trailer. Yeah, I, I guess it does kind of give away the ending of Ragnarok a little bit. Yeah, and the fact that he has his hammer and stuff or whatever. So yeah, but well, you uh, know he gets the hammer back. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I mean obviously. <laughs> 
Uh, so I think that pretty much runs down the Marvel news. There's some other stuff, but it's not really that important to talk about right now. Uh, <laughs> shall we move on to our favorite DC Murderverse? I guess. Well, actually, this might be this might be positive. Yeah. And you're going to know probably more about this than I do. But what we heard, we, <laughs> what other people heard and then told us about what happened at the DC panel is that the Flash movie, which I think will be the next DC movie after... Justice League, I think. I think so. Doesn't matter. But that will be adapting the Flashpoint storyline. And can you explain to me and anyone who's dumb enough to be listening right now what that is? So brief comic history here. At some point, Jeff Johns took over writing The Flash, and he decides that everyone needs to have Batman's backstory and not needs to be an orphan or have a parent <laughs> dead. So they decide that Flash's new origin story is that his mom was killed when he was very young, and his father was framed for the murder and is in jail, which is definitely the route they're going because in the Justice League trailer, you can see him with his dad in jail. Also took this backstory. This has become The Flash's backstory. So in the show, everything. Uh, eventually, this leads to Barry one day saying, Fuck it. I'm tired of having my ship, like my books dumped and my life being miserable. I'm going back in time and I'm saving my mom because the person that killed his mother was the reverse flash who had went back in time to kill his mom. Bef- whatever. I don't know. But <laughs> he goes back and stops him, wakes up the next day and he's in this alternate reality that he created, which people dub Flashpoint. Here's some details about this. Uh, this alternate reality, which if you want to get the rundown, you don't read the comics, which I haven't read. There's a really good animated movie called Flash. I guess it's just called Flashpoint. It was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it is anymore, but it's really, really good. And it you know gives you the pared down version of what's in the comics. So essentially, when Superman lands, he gets picked up by the government and doesn't become Superman. Uh, the night of Bruce Wayne's parents being killed, Bruce is killed. His father becomes Batman. Uh, and by Batman, I mean basically the Punisher. Hmm. And his mother becomes the Joker because she goes insane. Um, All right. That's kind of a spoiler, I guess. But, oh, well, a uh, spoiler for an alternate universe and whatever that gets reset. Um, and uh, Wonder Woman and Aquaman's kingdoms are at war and have wiped out pretty much half, like, the planet. And so this is all the butterfly effect from him going back in time and saving his mom. Yeah. You know, so the force and all that. So the the DC universe is completely rewritten by this one little act. Yeah. So in the show, they adapted this. It wasn't to that degree because they don't have those characters, but things change. Um, The biggest thing being he doesn't have his powers. He's not the Flash. So (laughs) the basic storyline is that he has to he tracks down Thomas Wayne, recreates the experiment that gave him his powers, gets his powers, fights the reverse Flash while trying to navigate the craziness that is this world. Uh, you know, Themyscira and Atlantis being at war. And ha- I think I think the big thing is like Aquaman caused a tidal wave that wiped out most of Europe, like something like that. I don't know. It's pretty crazy, but uh, it's pretty dark, pretty dark stuff. The point being, hey, this is bonkers to do in your f- first Flash movie. But B, this smells heavily of rewriting some universe stuff. Yeah. To forward. Yeah, this definitely gives them an opportunity to hit that big reset button that we've been asking them to hit for a long time now. Um, so it could end up end up cool because with the idea being that he manages to put the universe, set the universe to right. All right, well, but now we're just stealing the plot of Back to the Future. But, you know, they set things right, but things are still slightly different when they get back. And maybe we can... 
correct some of the mistakes of the early movies or maybe have a different actor playing Batman <laughs> or a different actor playing Superman. At this point, the only actor I'm confident in is, well, I guess Gal Gadot has done a good job. Still haven't seen Wonder Woman, but I've, I've, I'm coming around on Jason Momoa's Aquaman because based on the trailers, he seems to care about these movies about as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of dig it. I mean, I kind of didn't like it at first, but like Aquaman's a tough character. So, yeah. you know what? If you're going to have just like a hammy character play it and you're going to be a little bit Thor, a little bit rock star, like whatever, like fine, yeah, do across it. across between Thor and Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm like, all right, fine. That's a good enough angle on Aquaman. <laughs> um, but Affleck has reaffirmed his commitment to playing Batman in uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman. Yeah. As, as far as that goes, I mean... Up until the moment he was no longer directing Batman, he was talking about how he was still directing Batman. That's true. That's true. He's dropped so, out of a lot of projects. This whole thing is is slipping away from him. I'm sure he's looking for his way out. Yeah, and I guess there. I mean, he it sounds like he's got some personal things going on that's you know for his his life that is impacting him negatively. So that might be a, a, an easy way to get out of it. Yeah. Not easy. That's the wrong thing to sure. say, but you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a uh, honorable exit uh, as much as it can be at this point in the eyes of the public, I would think. But yeah, he says that, but also like, you know, three days before that announcement, DC was, you know, the rumor was that, you know, the, the movie studio was actively pursuing their options to replace him which yeah. sounds to me like they were sending out feelers and maybe doing some early screen tests. I wouldn't be surprised at all if there is a A-list actor out there somewhere who is essentially the alternate <laughs> to play Batman in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that I think doing the Flashpoint soft reset, like you said, you can keep the people you like and get rid of the people that don't want to do it anymore or you don't like and correct some stuff. Get rid of that whole Suicide Squad nonsense get rid of the murder verse and just start fresh. I mean, you really can start fresh here and you can say like, Oh yeah, well the stuff of Wonder Woman still happened because I wasn't affected. Fine. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's comic continuity bullshit. You don't need to explain it. Just do it. <laughs> uh, so I, I actually really hope that happens because there sounds like there's some people attached to some upcoming DC projects that really care about stuff, you know, like with weed and doing Batgirl and it sounds like, um, sounds like the guy doing Aquaman, like legitimately really cares about this as much as you can care about Aquaman, I guess. And even um, the guy attached to, uh, well, and, and it sounds like Matt Reeves' Batman sounds really interesting. So you have people who are doing, want to do cool stuff, but you want to get out from under this baggage. Yeah, definitely. So there's two trailers that came out of this that I think have something to do with each other. And one of those is Stranger Things Season 2, and the other is Ready Player One. Ready Player One is an adaptation of Ernest Cline's novel of the same name about a near-future world where everyone is jacked into a virtual reality internet that was essentially started by a single guy, um, a Mark Zuckerberg-type uh, you know, super tech genius, and everybody stays jacked into this internet um, all the time. It is the, it's called The Oasis. Um, however, it turns out that this, the creator of the Oasis being someone who came up in 80s pop culture and loving that pop culture has hidden an Easter egg in the Oasis that if someone can find it, they become the owner of the Oasis. Essentially, Willy Wonka is giving away the chocolate factory 
to the person who, you know, passes the test. Um, and in order to unlock the mystery, the our hero has to solve all of these 1980s, you know, pop culture puzzles, video games, Dungeons and Dragons, Rush songs, et cetera, et cetera, to crack the code. And I've read it. Have you read it? I have not read it, but I've had a number of friends who have read it. Okay, so that's the setup, and they dropped the trailer at Comic-Con. What did you think of the trailer? Uh, I, I did know the basic rundown of the story, so knowing that, it looked like a cool visual representation of that. Um, I've heard from all my friends who've read it, essentially, pretty much most of them hated it, like, across the board, which is really strange for this, like, very popular novel that I've heard a lot about and have heard mostly good things from people I didn't know, but most of the people I know, including people who usually have divergent taste and disagree everything else like oh yeah that book sucks i hated it i couldn't get through it it's boring just pop culture references listed on page for you know 200 pages or whatever um however even talking to some of them they're saying that well that might work better in a movie form i don't know but it looked visually cool and you could see some of the references in easter eggs like was that the iron giant in that trailer like yes um and then like is his avatar like some sort of orc or something i don't know but uh it looked like something like that but that was my impression with my context of going into it so i i mean so the trailer has a lot of cool things like you know presumably our hero doing donuts in the back to the future um delorean that looks pretty cool a lot of really cool looking action sequences i mean they're playing a little fast and loose with the time period of the references because iron giant like that was late 90s yeah uh, that, that doesn't quite fit. I know that that's going to resonate with the target audience of this movie a lot more than with the maybe the target audience of the novel, which, OK, fine. I, you're, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, you know, I went into this thing because, you know, I'm like, I guess, a lot of your friends that I did not um, like the novel. I mean, it was it was a fun, pulpy read, but I had serious problems with it. Um you know, I kind of went into this with my arms crossed, but then when the trailer basically like it's kind of those two trailers, like there's one trailer and then it kind of fades to black and it starts up kind of a different trailer with uh, just synchronized up to Rush's Tom Sawyer. Like, I got to say that that got me going. I got my motor running. But then again, you know, it's not trailers are designed to manipulate your emotions and, you know, very talented people know what they're doing to get you there. But yeah, I think my complaint with Ready Player One, and I actually think I might be repeating myself back from way back from episode eight when we talked about nostalgia, um, is that Ready Player One, it's really just references. It's just pointing to things and kind of being like, hey, remember this? And I think, you know, my impression of Ready Player One suffered because at the time I was, I read it immediately after reading Wolf in White Van, John Darnielle's novel, which is similar in that it's about a person who, you know, grew up in the 80s with heavy metal music and, um, you know, early video games and pen and paper role-playing games. And it captures the feeling of being a teenager in that period. Whereas Ready Player One is just kind of like, hey, remember Joust? Joust was cool. Um it just kind of, it doesn't make the emotional connection that I think, you know, for nostalgia to really work, uh, it has to do that. It has to capture a feeling and Ready Player One doesn't do that. It just kind of imagines a big playground where 
almost League of Extraordinary Gentlemen style. Like, what if Tron and Donkey Kong and, um, you know, Tomb of Elemental Evil were all real and you could go and, and play in them, which was, you know, I mean, that's kind of a fantasy of being, you know, like a kid when I was that age. And, you know, that where you kind of, you know, I remember, you know, where you had to use your imagination you had to exercise it a lot more when you were playing video games, like to translate Castle, you know, the original Castlevania into something real, like you really had to exercise your imagination, um, you know, and, and as a kid, allowing your imagination to run wild in that world, you know, Ready Player One pays off on that a little bit, but it's more referential than it is, you know, really, truly nostalgic. So that brings me to something that I think gets it right, which was the Stranger Things season two promo. Or trailer, whatever you whatever you want to call it. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's exactly what I would want from. I mean, I couldn't write it down, but it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted from Stranger Stranger Things season two trailer, and hopefully from the season itself. The right amount of teasing what's going on, but not really giving away any plot points. You know, uh, like you said, instilling that feeling in you, like using the Ghostbusters trap to like. I don't know what the hell they're doing with it, but like, I don't know. It just seems cool integrating that integrating the references not just references but like just a part of the scenery right and it's that these kids you know these kids went to see ghostbusters that summer and now it's halloween so they're all dressed up as ghostbusters and playing ghostbusters like like yeah that's what that makes sense that for that those kids in that time to be running around in homemade ghostbusters uh gear for halloween like that because and that i think pay that connects with that feeling of being a kid and like having that movie you were totally obsessed with um, as a child, as opposed to just kind of looking at you and be like, hey, Ghostbusters was pretty cool, right? Remember that? Yeah, proton packs. Um, and it looks like that, you know, they're also kind of, you know, they're kids and they're playing, but they're also like, they're clearly you know, like they're trying to use the Ghostbusters trap and they're interpreting what's going on around them through the lens of ghostbusters and through the lens of what they were experiencing and obsessed with at the time and like yeah that's how kids work <laughs> like and that's just seems so good and um i mean maybe ghostbusters is a little on the nose for those kids yeah. um and like this is really how they're reacting to the trauma they just experienced by being like yeah let's ghostbusters that was fun remember when we did that and our friend died like that was cool let's let's do that again um but yeah the way they keep and you you get like a good 30 seconds of the trailer before you realize like oh that's that's the beat from thriller isn't it mm-hmm. and and then they build in and they bring in that vincent price narration from the middle of that song and i when i was a kid um I used to listen to that record all the time, but I would have to run into the other room when Vincent Price came on during Thriller because it scared the hell out of me. That laugh, and then when they just put that laugh in at the end, oh, man, so good. Yeah, I, it was awesome. I can't wait. And we don't have to wait too much longer, a couple more months. Yeah, right around Halloween. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I definitely agree. But I, I do think that like Ready Player One in visual format has, I think visual references are more interesting to me like seeing that stuff in visual form like you're seeing seeing you know like i don't know one of those like castlevania in visual form in a high production environment could be cool and that might it might not be the most like compelling story plot wise or character wise but maybe it'll be a fun visual experience and and kind of trip but we'll see yeah 
so I think one last yeah, yeah like ahead, one last ahead. comic like well uh, you know well, actually we'll do another another paper comic thing real quick speaking of being along the horror area you got a couple things in that area so robert kirkman has said that he is going to be ending the walking dead physical comics soon uh although he has said that there is not going to be a resolution to the virus or what caused the virus or a cure or anything like that which maybe i wouldn't say before the ending like <laughs> but i guess he's just trying to prevent people's disappointment when it's not there um he said this story has never been about pseudoscience and zombies it's been about people surviving in a terrible situation um, that being said, they've also released a trailer for the next season, which shows a much older Rick Grimes at the end of it, like much, much older, maybe huh. like 10 or 15 years older. And there is a big time skip in the comics after the events of fighting Negan. Uh, but it seems early to be showing that now, <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, I don't know if there may be, I can't imagine they're playing the rap to show up cause it just still makes a lot of money and gets a lot of viewers. But uh, maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be a couple more seasons and wrap it up. Because like, but they they have kind of hemmed pretty close to the comics, or course corrected me back pretty close to the comics the past season or two. So, um, just seems premature. But another comic that's I never read. You probably read because this is your demographic. Oh god, am I lumping with that? You super edgy when you were in high school. Do you read Spawn? Come on. Okay, first of all, yes, I read Spawn, but um, I read Spawn. Um, I, I remember buying the first issue of Spawn at a drugstore in, and that would have been in Newark, Delaware. So that would have been, we moved out of there when I was 10-ish. So before that, um, I remember being psyched about the Spawn movie in theaters. And I remember seeing it and being disappointed even at that age. Wow. Uh, but so yeah, so Todd McFarlane is finally getting another crack at a Spawn movie. This, um, I mean, there's every couple of years something perks up about there's a new script for a Spawn movie going out there. Some studio is interested in it, but apparently he announces at Comic Con that it is happening. There's a production company account um, attached, Bloomhouse, who did the Paranormal Activity series, and most recently uh, Get Out. So clearly a studio with horror chops. So, all right. I, I, they've been talking about doing Spawn from more of a horror angle rather than kind of a superhero angle, which, all right, fine. That makes sense, I suppose. Uh, but interestingly, Todd McFarlane is writing the script and directing the movie. You'll remember Todd McFarlane. He directed that other movie you loved, literally no other movies. Um, I, I mean, I'm just – Spawn is dumb. I'm not going to lie. I don't know anything about Spawn. All I know is we had some wicked cool action figures of Spawn when I was a kid. I maybe saw like 10 minutes of the movie on TNT at some point in my life. But like, I know nothing about it besides that. Besides, it's just like the epitome of 90s edge. It is. It is. I mean, it is just unironic 90s edge lord um, bullshit. It's really dumb. It's is there any value at all? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> I honestly, I, I like, I'm trying to think of, I really don't think that there is, it's like, I mean, I, I'm not a spawn scholar, but I don't think that there is anything to look at at spawn other than as an example of weird nineties excess. And I mean, even the character design, Todd McFarlane was clearly like, Hey, I want to keep drawing Spider-Man, but Marvel, Marvel doesn't want me to. So what if I just drew like the black, 
Spider-Man suit, but gave it like glowing green eyes and a big red cape. Cool. Done. (laughs) (laughs) And man, you know what? I mean, people always criticize me because my Spider-Man, like it always looked like he didn't have a nose under his mask. So what if I just made my guy under the mask like, oh, he's like a a corpse. So he doesn't have a nose. Oh, what about that? And so in the first couple issues, you're like, oh, you see him without his mask and he's just this like burnt up, desiccated corpse. And you're like, oh, man, that's so cool. But he's so tortured and he's coming back from hell and all that. And then like and then you get the flashback to when he was alive and and they're like, oh, shit, he was black all along. And like at the time, that was a big reveal. And that just feels just so like manipulative and dumb now Ugh. that like that's your big point. Like, uh, we showed you he was black. It's like, uh, I guess in the 90s, that was, you know, really playing with uh, people's racial uh, yeah, expectations, or expectations in comics. But it just comes off as so cheap now. And I, I don't know how you do Spawn. I don't know how you bring Spawn into the modern day. Um without it feeling like bringing Duke Nukem into the modern day. Like, it's just, you've got to do a lot of work to make this thing make sense in today's environment because it is just so laughable now. I mean, he's got like, it, the, the suit is some kind of like, it's not a symbiote. Nope, nope, not a symbiote because that, that's Marvel's thing. It, but it is, a, it is a demon that he got when he was in hell that gives him powers, but he also has a weird relationship with. And But this suit that comes from hell, right? It's like a spandexy spider cost Spider-Man costume that also has a big red Dracula cape, but also has like big like '90s style like pouches wrapped around the thigh. Like, what does he keep in there? It's like he's he literally got his costume from the devil. Like the devil's putting like these weird pseudo military like ammo bags on the. It's just it's just a bunch of nonsense. Stay away. I just remember the action figures being like. Boy, if you stepped on one of those, you were done. Because they were <laughs> so full of spikes and like tentacles and you know pointy things. It was the end. Uh, yeah, that's a strange. I mean, like I, you know, when it when, you, when I saw that news, I was like, man, I completely forgot about Spawn being like a thing at all. But like, maybe there's gonna be a trend for like horror-y super movies, superhero movies with like Spawn and Hellboy. The way they're talking about it, like all coming out around the same, probably roughly around the same time, and. I don't know. It's just a little bit strange, but we'll see, I guess. But um, another movie that apparently is going to be made is their, the, the Marvel that no one cares about. Uh, Fox is announced that they're making um, not, they didn't announce anything, but the guy, the showrunner behind Legion, which apparently is awesome. Yes, it is. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, <laughs> you but should. Uh, I've heard it's like beyond superhero TV to like actually like just prestige television. Yeah, some of the special effects in the first episode, like you can see where they spent their budget and where they cut their corners, mm. but it's worth it anyway. It's really fantastic. Uh, but that he's in basically maybe making a Doctor Doom movie. Yeah, so he, he was asked at Comic-Con like what his next project is, and apparently he answered just by saying Doctor Doom, which would imply he's making a Doctor Doom movie. Um, but maybe it could also mean maybe a Fantastic Four movie, but uh, God, I hope it's just Doctor Doom. <laughs> And I know you love yourself some Doctor Doom. I do, but I also don't want... I mean, he's one of the few villains you could probably have without their, like... Because I, I hate the whole trend of, like, making villain movies and stories without their heroes in, anywhere involved. But I think he's maybe one of the few you could do without the heroes. But I'm still like, eh, I don't know. Villains oftentimes aren't very compelling when they don't have a foil. But I think if anybody can do it, it could be Noah Hawley. 
um, watching Legion, which is, I mean, because Legion is kind of technically a villain in the X-Men universe. Yeah. And I think Noah Hawley, based on what I've seen of Legion, this guy has not only the emotional chops to make villain and hero not really matter in the context of his movies, if you, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really a good evil question. That's not really what his the show is about. So he could make that work. Um, but also I think the visual style and the storytelling style that he brings, like he managed to bring this weird 60s psychedelic kind of um, sensibility to Legion. And I'm not saying that that's what he should do for Dr. Doom, but his ability to find a tone and a visual style and a feeling to make it all kind of work and and really give it the emotional weight. I would love to see what he does with a Dr. Doom. Cool. Well, I'll take your word for it. It's on my list of shows to watch. Uh, Why I'm watching Iron Fist before, you know, Legion or American Gods or any number of shows is a big (laughs) question, but it betrays some of my biases, I guess. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I just hope it's not another Fox ploy to option the rights on Fantastic Four to keep them any, for another <laughs> 10 years or whatever. Uh, but it could be. Could be. So one last piece of news from this week. Um, before we start talking about Game of Thrones, this is actually a natural segue. So um, everybody's favorite weird uncle, George R.R. R. Martin, uh, did an interview with Vanity Fair recently uh, and talked about um, when Winds of Winter is coming out. And it sounds like, uh, I mean, I know we're more than halfway through 2017, but if you thought you were reading more uh, Song of Ice and Fire this year, change your plans. Um, it sounds like 2018, or he said 2019. Um, so that's telling me 2020. So hey, we'll get a new president and a new George R. R. Martin, a new uh, a new Song of Ice and Fire um, book that year. So uh, the twenty twenty might be a decent year, but that will make it a full. Let's see, um, two thousand eleven was um, the last book. So this will be let's say twenty nineteen twenty twenty. So he's just the the time between each book is getting longer and longer. It, it, at some point, it will approach infinity. Um, Dream of Spring will come out sometime in the year thirty ten. Um, but he did say, and this is incredibly infuriating that for sure in 2018, we're going to be getting book one of blood and fire, his two book volume about the Targaryen dynasty leading up to Robert's rebellion. George! (laughs) So not only has he wasted his time in the last six years since the last book, um also and six years he had six years between the book before the last book and that book um doing a bunch of dumb bullshit little werewolf short stories or whatever nonsense he does um he, to be true he did help make get the tv show made which we're all grateful for but uh he did manage to write at least one more book in this universe about shit that we don't care about and stuff information we already have from his giant world bible world of ice and fire that he published a year or two ago but now we just get it in more loving detail um so you know he's writing his silmarillion and he's 
calling it that, um, before Return of the King comes out, before he's even halfway done Two Towers. This is infuriating. I almost wish at this point that he would just say, I mean, he's fairly candid about his process and saying like, look, I'm, it's just taking me a long time to finish. Um, this is hard work. Um, but I almost feel like at this point he needs to hand it off to somebody and just say, we just get this shit done. I can't. This is nonsense. Although I've always heard that there was a lot of rumors going around that the only person, do you know who his, his backup is? The rumor of whose backup is? I don't. You want to take a guess? Well, who would I like it to be or who, who is it actually? Who do you think it actually is? Hmm. Uh, worst of all possible worlds, Patrick Rothfuss. You got oh, it. fuck me. <laughs> So you're That's telling rumor, me, at least. you're telling me that the only way I could potentially get, well, no, it doesn't even matter because that fucker's taking seven years to finish his other books too. Not that I really care, but well, no, I do care. I'm going to have to read it because he got into my brain somehow. <laughs> He's got like weird purple man powers through his, uh, through his writing. Uh, <laughs> you're kidding me. That's who he has as his understudy. That's the, that's like the. The rumor and the going theory is that the only person he's talked to about the ending and is preparing to hand it off to or whatever something would happen is, is Patrick Rothfuss, uh, which I would sooner have Stephanie Meyer do it. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's infuriating. You're right. Um, I mean, if that was coming out two years after Dreamer from the Spring, I'd be like, all right, cool. I'll read it. But not now, dude. Like, like you said, you just brought out Word of Ice and Fire, which I haven't even read all of because it's like. I don't know. And I'm an, I'm a big nerd like that. I would love that kind of shit. But like, I still haven't read it because it's huge. Uh, it's cool. But like, fuck, just get your book written, man. Like, just sit down and do it. Yeah, I feel like we're just going to have to, in order to save ourselves emotionally, we're just going to cut ourselves loose from this thing. We have to. <laughs> I'll just tell my, we tell my, tell my daughter legends of like someday, someday when you are older, when the sun hangs low and red in the sky and the crops have turned to ash, you may find out what George R. R. Martin, how, how he, how his ending is 10% different than the shows someday. Yeah. Right. Ugh. Uh, but shall we move on to the Yeah. Show? Let's talk about the fucking show, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So season seven, episode two, Stormborn. <sighs> what do you think? Uh, I liked it better than the first episode. Uh, there were some things I liked quite a bit, some things I didn't care for so much. Uh, you can definitely tell why they cut a lot of the Ironborn stuff, considering essentially a, three quarters of a whole book is basically Ironborn shit, Feast for Crows. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, everyone said like, yeah, they're not gonna do it because Navy shit is expensive as hell to film. Sure. And given the what I've heard described as a really bad Assassin's Creed cutscene, um, Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, just, I mean, like, there was parts of that scene that were really cool, but, like, you can just tell, like, boy, we're going to make this at, at nighttime, have it be two boats, have it be, you know, mostly CGI and a bunch of extras, and that's going to be our big naval fight of the season because anything else is way too goddamn expensive. Yeah, um, I... I there was one part of that I liked, which was Euron coming down on the boarding plank 
yeah. you know, screaming his head off and looking crazy as fuck. And I was like, this is the like mad pirate king Euron Greyjoy that I've wanted to see. Um, uh-huh. And like the idea, like, I feel like you felt like, man, what if I was on a boat and this shit started happening? Like, it, you were, it was genuinely intimidating and, um, terrifying. Um, and then it kind of devolved into what I thought was kind of a little bit of by the numbers battle scene. It didn't really, I mean, we just watched the last episodes of season six before this one, before this season started to kind of get caught up. And like, after watching Battle of the Bastards, which was the battle sequence and that was just like so beautifully done and like, the emotional weight of everything that was going on. And this just felt more like just an, just an action sequence. Didn't really have the same kind of like, and it's not just about the scale. It's about that. Like you feel the stakes and you feel like there's people at risk. And, um, this one felt a little flat. I, in comparison, I mean, mostly cause I probably don't care about any of the characters involved with it at all, right. because they're all, all of them are at this point where you're like, can these people just fucking die already? Like, I don't care about anyone who has the last name Sand <laughs> or Martell at this right. point. So, I mean, I one thing that is point one thing that I was we were having a big hour and a half long discussion at work today. A bunch of people talking about Game of Thrones. A lot of work uh, gets done over there at Villanova, huh? Yeah, right. Um, it's just everyone's into it, which is cool. But uh, so you're beginning to really see not just this season, but from last season too, like all the plot points that were started because there wasn't really a coherent plan of what we're keeping and what we're cutting. Cause I don't, you know, and like no TV show really has that from the beginning. A few, sh- I think a lot of shows have a rough estimate of what's going to happen, but especially with an adaptation of something so dense and complex, needlessly dense and complex at points, uh, you're seeing like things that got started and don't go anywhere because they ended up cutting that plot point. Yeah. Example, like, I mean, did we really need to have Doran in the story at all? No, no. At least the Ironborn stuff, which is on the verge of also not being necessary, is A, because Theon's kind of an important character of the story, and B, because boats need to bring Daenerys, although they probably could have written that something else. Well, so this was something actually that um, I feel like that the whole Euron's magic fleet thing really does the show a disservice. And first of all, I somewhere on the internet, I'll find it, I'll link it in the show notes, um, it might have been Vulture, it might have been Vox, but they actually contacted an expert in medieval shipbuilding to talk about um, what would be involved in building that fleet. And, you know, this is a person who can talk about how many trees had to be felled to build a particular ship back in 1388. Um, and he said that you would need a forest, a, a fully grown forest the size of Greater London. You would need... And even if you had 50 active shipyards um, fully staffed, you would need three or four years to do this. Yeah. And everybody, it's it's so obvious that like he built those ships really fucking quick. And then, all right, so, but even if we want to s- suspend our disbelief a little bit for this show, um, even though we've been told that the Iron Islands are completely barren and everything they get, they have to get with the iron price, which means murdering a dude. How many dudes do you have to murder to steal this many ships? I don't know, but an entire continent's worth. But um, even if you suspend your disbelief, it's like, okay, well, if somebody can just kind of like say, get me a thousand ships and then a month later they have them, why did I spend six years trying to get Daenerys a fleet? Waiting for Daenerys yeah. to get a fleet if apparently ships grow on fucking trees in this world yeah and like this is something that 
Martin talked about maybe a year or two ago, people were asking about changes from the books to the show. And he said, like, you're going to start seeing a butterfly effect of things being included or being changed or not included. And that don't seem like a big deal now, but down the road are one of those things being that what this is going to be in the books is that one of like the Southern families or like a big naval family and the crown made or, or like requisitioned or, or ordered the creation of a, of a great fleet to start taking you know, start being more assertive at the sea because Westeros has never been a naval power. And towards the end of Dance of Dragons or in the middle of, I forget when, that fleet gets hijacked and they don't know where it is. Guess who fucking has it? Like, you're on. But because that didn't happen in the show, now we have this fleet of a thousand ships, which is a lot of boats. Yes. <laughs> appear to nowhere, which, by the way, is from what we saw last episode, roughly stationed off King's Landing. And King's Landing, you can almost see Dragonstone yes. from King's Landing. Like, they've, they've thrown all... This is starts... I'm, oh, the nerve rage is starting right, to come, come at me. Like, I got they've plenty. Thrown, they've thrown all... Uh, they've thrown all sense of geography out the window. And it wouldn't matter if they would have been that way from the beginning of the show and just said, ah, fuck it. Like, we're not going to care about it. But they show a fucking goddamn map at the beginning of every episode to show you where stuff is, show you how far things are away from each other. And they talk about and they show people traveling for t- right. long periods of time early on the, the show. The first three or four so, episodes of season one are just the Starks getting from Winterfell to King's Landing. And then the entire second season is Arya trying to get from King's Landing to the Wall. Like, that's how long yes. it takes to travel. Like, getting from, like, Winterfell to King's Landing in a good time of year is, like, months yes. of travel. Yes, So, a couple things. <laughs> First, Tyrion's ma- like plan of sending their troops around the Castle Rock, which I think is still happening. I think we're seeing that next episode. That's the equivalent of a fleet going from the tip of Brazil down the bottom of South, South America and landing in Peru. That is, and we're talking, not talking about modern ships here. That would take a modern ship a long time, let alone, you know, sailing ships from the medieval time period. Yeah. Like, also, since I think that's happening next episode, did they not go through the thousand ships that are sitting right in their path outside of that? Did they not send a scout ship? How do they not know this fleet? It, oh, it's just, yeah. Okay. Oh, it's so. like, I don't usually get too, like, bogged down in plot holes because every piece of fiction has them. And if you look for them, you will find them. But this is beyond my ability to. So I I agree. Yes. Plot holes exist, but these are plot holes that are created. Okay. So first the, the plot hole of the Euron's magic fleet is totally showrunner created. They set up that Theon and Yara steal a thousand ships or however many ships. And then they set up that Euron needs to build them back. The writers were completely in control of those numbers. They could have said 30 ships and I need 30 new ships. And we would have been like, fine. Like, we don't care how many it is. It's just a number of ships. Or, you know, they were the one who wrote that line of like, build me a thousand ships, which they're setting up a promise that their world, the world of their show can't reasonably deliver on. And they didn't have to do that. The second kind of plot hole, which is the apparent tactical dumb shittedness of this plan so okay so here are the people who are planning this you've got Tyrion lannister who has shown himself to be a brilliant strategist um not only in small-scale political maneuvering but also militarily as we saw at the battle of the blackwater and also someone who was educated by the lannisters to be you know a, a good military mind um you've also got daenerys who's 
you know, no slouch. Olena Terrell is in the room when this plan is being made. And two Greyjoys who probably know a thing or two about naval combat. So what do they do when they send their their crew off to go, um, you know, go uh, lay siege to Casterly Rock, right? That's where they were headed? Doesn't matter. One group was going to Dorne, or I guess going to get the armies to yeah. Dorne and bring them back up to King's Landing. And then the other group was going to Casterly So Rock. you put on one ship Theon Greyjoy, Yara Greyjoy, and uh, all, th- you know, the, 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 what's her name, Martell from Dorne, and all three Sand Snakes, you put your your five, six most important people all on one ship while you know your crazy super pirate uncle is out there and looking for you, and you put all of your most important people on one ship so they can have a makeout party? Like, what is your plan? I mean, we even know, like, the president and the vice president never fly together, just in case. I mean, honestly, the three or four people who know the secret recipe to Coca-Cola don't fly together, just in case. Like, why would you do this? What of these brilliant military minds let this happen? It's just and, – and so this go, goes into another pro- problem that I, I kind of realized as I was thinking about why this show feels weirder now in the last couple seasons – and that is because if you look at the first couple seasons of this show, it is, in, it is entirely character-driven. Every event that happens in the plot, every major event, is because of a decision that one of our characters made, right? Um, you know, the whole downfall of the Stark family is because Ned Stark decided to make his research into, you know, Joffrey's parentage. He decided to make that an issue, Right. He, he made a decision that he was like, I have to, you know, I have to bring this forward. And that caused his execution and the destruction of the Stark family, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Red Wedding was the direct result of Rob's decision to uh, marry What's-Her-Face instead of the other What's-Her-Face. Catelyn decided to kidnap Tyrion after that assassination attempt on Bran um, and bring him to the Aerie. Like, and that and all of the domino effects of all those decisions. These are decisions that our characters make and the plot is driven by them. Now, it doesn't feel that way anymore, does it? It just feels like shit just kind of happens. And we don't know why characters do things or they make decisions that seem out of character and kind of stupid, but it sets up a cool naval battle or um, it moves the plot forward. It gets them to a, a place in the world that they have to be in order to do a thing. Um, okay. Why does Tyrion want to help Daenerys? Because she, I mean, yeah, because no <laughs> she's going to, um, because she's going to maybe kill his brother and sister. It's unclear. And it used to be that you would spend your time, you would spend time with the characters and you would have these character moments in the show. You would get to know these characters and their motivations and their feelings and their ideas and their philosophies. And that was very important because, their emotions and ideas and philosophies would drive the plot. They would drive their decisions, which would drive the plot. And now it's just like, well, we need to get John to Dragonstone so that we can have a big scene with him and Daenerys. So, um, I don't know. Let's just have him go there because he needs some dragon glass. It's just, mm. it's, it's, it just doesn't feel character driven anymore. And again, and then you run into these situations that like, would Tyrion let them put their six most important people all on one boat? It, sailing in hostile waters when, you know, the whole continent knows that you guys are here to wreck shop. And also, yeah. I have to say, so I know Daenerys doesn't want to be queen of the ashes or whatever, 
Which, finally, there's an answer to why she doesn't just, you know, do what Aegon did and just fly his his dragons onto the continent and just torch everything in his path. Okay, that's fine. But why are we just getting that in some kind of offhanded speech right now? I've been wondering that for some time. I feel like that would have been a better plot point to bring up earlier. But, so we know that, okay, so turning the dragons loose on just the continent of Westeros is probably a bad idea for any number of reasons. And, you know, they were kind of showing us that maybe dragons aren't as invulnerable as they thought, even though we got a real big crossbow is kind of a kind of a letdown for uh, Cersei's big anti-dragon strategy. I was really hoping for something cooler than like, hey, we made a we made a ballista. Uh, well, when it was Kyber and they're going down to the crypts to the gym, I'm like, oh, did he make a zombie dragon? Like, that was my first yeah. thought. And I was like, uh, oh, this he could didn't be, make a zombie this dragon. This could be good. <laughs> and then it's like, hey, from like 10 yards away, this thing will go most of the way through a dragon's skull. I mean, a still dragon who's not alive. And also these bones are like 100 years old. So I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> if you get it, if you get them right in the eye and it's like, really, that's kind of I mean, I we needed some kind of anti-dragon strategy from Cersei. But this is so boring. But anyway, the idea is that so maybe there are certain things that a dragon will be good at. Vox actually has a very good write up of <laughs> a weirdly detailed analysis of the tactical advantages and disadvantages of dragon combat. Um, they say dragons would not be good against a gorilla force that can scatter easily and, you know, hide under cover just the way that American air, uh, air attacks were not effective against the Viet Cong. Like, ah, interesting. But, um, you know who we've already seen dragons be super good against? Boats. <laughs> so if I'm Daenerys and I'm, I've certainly heard from Yara and Theon, because why would they keep this a secret, that their crazy pirate brother is also out there with probably a fleet. And, oh, and by the way, I mean, Cersei probably has a navy. All of your, all of the hostile forces probably have a navy. You know, it would be a great show of strength and also wouldn't cause civilian casualties and also would be a great tactical advantage. Let's just send a dragon to just decimate one of these navies. They won't see it coming. We know dragons are super good against ships. Why don't we just do that? First thing you do, wipe a navy off the board. No. They're like, let's sail to Dorne in the middle of the night with all of our most valuable people on one ship and just hope nobody catches on. These dummies. It's just and it's just and why does that happen? Because they wanted to enable battle. They want to get a situation where uh Euron has some hostages he can give to Cersei. And we can maybe raise the stakes because now some characters we don't care about have become damseled. It's just it just doesn't feel the way the show used to feel because the, our characters aren't making the decisions that drive the plot. The writers are making the decisions that drives the plot. It's just very boring. Yeah, it feels like, and this is what I was getting at as well, is like, same thing, like, they need to have certain people be at certain places and have certain things done to end this story. And they didn't build up to it in a way because they wasted time on a lot of other bullshit, which didn't matter. Uh, and Martin has the luxury to do that because he can write as many goddamn books as he pleases no, or maybe well, not can't, who knows actually as it turns out he can't yeah. write that many books but you know what i mean like he he can have 1300 pages to go off and tell a whole separate ironborn story about victorian and Euron and the whole politics of the iron islands fine whatever but like we don't have that so if they don't serve the plot of what you need to do in the show cut them you know it's like and some and, and stuff's becoming telegraphed now like the whole masandi and gray worm scene which fine but He's dead, right? Like, he's gone. Oh, yeah. Because why else do you have that scene? You know what I mean? Or or she's in trouble, but I think it's mostly him since he's going to fight. So, like, I just, I do feel like there's just, they left people in places where they 
they need to be further along or in a different spot, and they're just maneuvering around players on a board to get them to what'll hopefully be a cool ending. But uh, I don't know. It's 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 like I and it's like even though it's like I watch it and like I am enjoying it, but then I sit back and I'm like, oh, that wasn't really that exciting. Like past Game of Thrones has been for me. Yeah, but because you're just kind of waiting for the plot to move to its next, uh, to its next beat. You're not you're not asking like, oh how is how is Tyrion going to react to this? Oh man, what's going to happen when these two characters get together? Because in the old version of Game of Thrones, like the idea of, um, you know, what's going to happen when Varys and Daenerys get together? That could be interesting. Um, but now it's like, okay, well, when Jon Snow meets Daenerys Targaryen, like I can already see how that scene is going to go in my head and it's boring and I don't care because I know that He's going to convince her that the dragon glass is important, but then he's, she's going to make him do some other dumb thing in order to have access to it, right? We're going to have to have a fetch quest because nothing can be easy. Um, but it's just, I'm not, I don't care. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're telegraphing this big meeting. But, you know, I, at this point, I know so little about Daenerys' motivations. I've always known so little about Daenerys' motivations. Why does she want the Iron Throne? Is it because she feels entitled to it? Yes. That's, then I don't care, you know? Um, well, and that, that's like, I think the best scene in the episode, the two things I liked the episode were I liked the Arya meeting the Marius scene was weird, but I liked her decision to go north. Yes. Because it shows that she's not just a revenge monster and that she still has love in her she, heart for the people in her she life. she seemed genuinely conflicted and you weren't sure which way she was going to go. Like, that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, but the scene I really liked was Daenerys and Varys talking where she, you know, like, I liked that scene because she's being smart thinking like you betrayed everyone you've ever worked for you're slimy essentially and he's like yeah because i do what i think is right and it's like damn you got balls man i mean you don't have balls but like (laughs) you've got balls like and i like that scene and but it's once again it's like daenerys what's your goal here like because yeah the people of westeros are in you know to quote rick and morty it's just slavery with extra steps but like uh, (laughs) you're not really your initial your initial motivation here is not to come and free the people. She even she even talks about that and how it's stupid. Right. In this episode, people are not drinking toast to my, my me and my family's name or whatever. I mean, sure, we've been we've been shown that the current rulers of the of Westeros, Cersei, are fucking maniacs. But like when that started, it wasn't really the case. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just uh, I I and even that conversation rubbed me the wrong way because it's kind of like really you're having this conversation now. Like, yeah, after you followed him for how, yeah. you know, how many you guys months have been palace for like three seasons now, and now you're finally having this conversation and question for you. Uh-huh. Do you think that Daenerys is going to end up on the throne? I don't think anybody ends up on the throne. Okay. I think there's some kind of third way that gets worked out here. I don't know exactly what it is, um, because I think that the. The larger argument of the show is that it doesn't matter who's in charge. It's the larger systems that are in play here. And things are always going to be in turmoil unless those systems get changed. And I think Daenerys's line last season of um, I'm going to break the wheel implies that that's, you know, that they're somehow going to find an alternative to the feudal system they have. Um, because I think that was also a line in this show of something – in this uh, episode, I should say, something along the lines of, um, and maybe it was Varys who was saying something like, or maybe it was somebody else. Where did this line come from? Or maybe it was the maester, like, 
uh, it's this king, and then it's that king, and then it's the other king, and nothing ever really changes. There's never really peace. Who are we kidding? Um, yeah, it was the maester, the archmaster. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's like, I think that's going to be the larger theme. I don't, I really hope it's not Daenerys because she's the weakest character of the main characters. Uh, her story is the most boring. Her motivations are the most um, contrived. And she's also uh, incompetent. Yeah. Uh, but, but also the show weird and the books don't really weirdly, they weirdly don't point out how incompetent she is. Like the show doesn't shy away from showing that like, hey, Jon Snow is kind of a dummy sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. But we are always given Daenerys in these big, dramatic, sweeping, you know, and she's never really wrong. Um, she never makes a move that's a bad move to us, obviously, in the moment. It just seems – she gets treated in a really weird way that I don't – it just seems inconsistent with the other characters. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always a big fan of, like, one of the theories for the books was that Daenerys was going to end up being sort of, like, the villain by the end of the series. And I was really kind of – maybe villain too strong a word, but you know what I mean? She would kind of take on some of the shades of her father and just get so obsessed with this seeking power and getting the throne that she would sacrifice the realm for it. And that, you, you know, your true, your true stalwart here will be Jon Snow or, you know, Tyrion or whoever. But, uh, but like, if I feel like if either of those things are happening, they're going to come out of like nowhere. I mean, I, I, you said there has been some hints that, I mean, it's definitely a theme for Martin and the show has touched that theme at points, but I don't think it seems like it's on a path for someone to win the throne. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like that person is Daenerys, but right. Cause Jon Snow is not going to want it at the end of the day. Right. Jon Snow is going to walk yeah. away from it. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that'll be what happens, but I just, maybe she won't live through it. I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities it could go, but I, I was thinking about like, you know, in that episode, I was like, do I actually see this series ending with her sitting on that throne? And the answer is no, hmm. even though I feel like that's where the show wants me to think it's going. And I don't think, and then that's not like a compliment, like, oh, they're going to do a reversal on me. I just don't, I just think it's like poor writing, but like, <laughs> uh, like at this point anyway, where it seems like she is supposed to be the hero that's going to come and save the day. And that's what I'm supposed to think is going to happen, but maybe it won't. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure I even care anymore who's on the throne. And I think that's a big failure of the show. Um, very quickly before we move on to recommendations, how psyched are you to see whether or not Jorah Mormont gets his grayscale cured. It's really oh, the, the, the key plot point that we've been missing out on. Yeah. And once again, it's like, why are we wasting time on this? It, it just, the only thing it can imply to me is that he's important for something or this grayscale is important for something or something's important for something as outside of just, because otherwise he just would have been cut. Because there's been plenty of other plot points. Like, remember the whole Iron Bank of Bravos thing? Yeah. They spent time on that? Yeah, that, that's nowhere to be found. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and it's somehow more important to Sam than figuring out how to stop the invasion of unstoppable ice monsters coming from the north to level all of civilization. No, let me cure the uncurable disease of the guy of, you know, the guy who's related to my old boss from the Night's Watch. Yeah. It's just... Who was who exiled for sl for selling slaves, like... And, and just the fact that this whole time we've been told, like, oh, no, grayscale's incurable. Nobody knows how to do it. Um... Don't even bother. And then, and then he gets to the thing and it's like, oh no, no, it's, it's, it's actually pretty easy. You do the most basic thing, which is peel off the infected flesh and put an ointment on it. I'm like, you know, the most bait, the first idea anyone would have. And by the way, HBO released a promo still, which is a, you know, a still shot of the book that he's using and the, I'm going to read the ingredients to you from the, uh, the recipe for this miracle, uh, salve to cure the incurable grayscale pine resin. You know, from a pine tree, elderbark, 
you know, from an elderberry tree, <laughs> beeswax and olive oil. And those last two are probably just the things that turn those that pine resin and elderbark into a uh, into a, a, a paste and doesn't even give you proportions or measurements. It's just like these two very common, obvious ingredients are the key to this super disease. This show has gotten so fucking sloppy. Ah, man. Yeah. And I got to say, though, they got me with that. Oh, it was so gross. But it was also the same gross out smash cut that they used on Theon's scene from a season or two ago with the sausage. Well, not but not quite. It was like because that was just like, oh, that was haha funny. But like more and like even last episode with like the montage of Sam and the shit and the soup and that kind of stuff. Like that was just like it kind of made me laugh. But like they got me. I was just like, oh, yeah, no, that was really nasty. Like they really the editing was just very done. very. All of America had a dry heave at that moment. Yep. Um. The only other thing I'd say, one one positive thing, one positive note, um, I was watching it and I was like watching the intro with the map and everything. I'm like, oh man, this is so satisfying that we never go over to Essos yeah. anymore. I was like, oh, this is so nice. But all of, <laughs> I mean, I noticed it last uh, time. But... All of our main characters are actually close by and can actually influence each yeah. other for a change. Yeah. At least we have that. But All right. Is there is there anything you want to recommend for this week? Uh, Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been kind of a... Uh, um been kind of a slow weird week for me too um i'm you know still enjoying uh eternal and um uh the blade itself enjoying that more and more uh as i go on but i guess i would tell i would say you to you that you should probably get around to watching legion when you get a chance gotcha yeah and i I guess my recommendations are go watch all the trailers from comic-con if you're into trailers uh a lot of them are pretty cool um, I, I will also just say that I think now is a really good time for players to hop into Eternal. Uh, Greg is one of those players. I got another friend hooked over the weekend, I think. So it's just they released a new set and it's a lot of fun. And it's just there's like the meta is all over the place and there's just a lot of new cards. And like it's kind of a mess. And a mess is a good time to come into a card game instead of <laughs> when everything's established and you're just trying to beat the most popular decks. Right. Yeah, I I, I would agree that. um this, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fun place to drive in. I have a lot of experience with magic, but this is different enough that, um, there's a learning curve, but it's not terribly steep. It's a fun game and you should play it. Oh, I forgot one thing I wanted to tell you about uh-huh. real quick. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a follow up from last week from Supernatural. Oh no. So the Supernatural Comic Con, it was not really news, but one thing I forgot to mention is that the end of every season, I told you that Supernatural is big into its classic rock, uh, dad rock. Oh, I know uh, they, where this is going. Oh no! The beginning of every the the re, like sort of like they have like a little montage at the beginning of the last episode of every season where they kind of show they fought the road so far and they kind of show how what's happened up to this point very quickly. But it's always played with "Carry On My Wayward Son" by Kansas. And this year at Comic Con, there was no news about anything supernatural related at all. They're not even like a sizzler for next season. But it was just. They, they had a screen down and they started playing the song and it turns out it was actually Kansas playing that song live, which I thought was very cute. Supernatural, the county fair of, <laughs> of fantasy television shows. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. That's a good way to describe it, actually. All right, buddy. Well, I'll see you next week. See you next week.